Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studio, it's time for Family Business Radio. Showcasing outstanding family businesses and the advisors who assist them. Good afternoon. You're listening to an episode of Family Business Radio. I'm your host, Anthony Chen. Today, we have three amazing guests with us here today. You're going to share with their, us their insights when it comes to risk and succession planning. Uh, our first guest coming up is Jeremy Stevenson with iBridge Global Partners. Welcome to the show, Jeremy. Thank you, Anthony. I appreciate you having me on. Great. Thank you. So kind of share with our audience kind of an insight as to what got you started. So I worked for a dysfunctional family business when I was in high school. And then uh, in college, I ran a couple of my parents' smaller family businesses. And uh, one of them was case study and bad partnerships. And the other one actually succeeded sufficiently or moderately. Um, And then, you know, you go to college, you work in corporate. And then I got into consulting and I ended up consulting with numerous, numerous family businesses and saw the contribution that you make to the local ecosystems. Basically, obviously, the U.S. economy is really built on family businesses, but they usually have a big challenge in terms of family dynamics and figuring out how to pass the baton to the next generation. So um, helped a lot of businesses out in that perspective and then got into a family office, uh, basically advising their portfolio. And, you know, you just continue to go down that rabbit hole, got involved in startups and things. But from a from a U.S. economic perspective and just from the contribution that family businesses make, I think it's really important that we continue to help them carry on those legacies and continue path forward. So you've been through it yourself in family businesses in your circle and also help uh, other family businesses in terms of their conversation when it comes to succession planning. What what would you say would be kind of the top two or three challenges that are pretty similar among all family businesses? Family dynamics and transition planning, basically. Those are really the two that get them. Lack of growth is real, rarely uh, the company's pitfall when it comes to scaling a business, basically. I mean, somebody not necessarily know how to run the business and how to grow it to, you know, from 50 to 100 million or something like that, whoever's in charge. But it's the family dynamics and dysfunction, essentially, a lot of times that actually challenge the business from a going concern perspective. And then you get into that leads into the next perspective of you don't want to start scratching that wound a little bit. So nobody starts planning for transition or they start planning way late, basically, and underestimate how long it's going to take to really create a life business retirement strategy. Um, and so, you know, there's there's a lot of businesses out there that end up faltering, basically. And I mean, a significant percentage, essentially, from a family business perspective that either end up selling for pennies or end up going bankrupt because of lack of transition planning. Nobody knows where the keys to the front door are when something happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, with family dynamics, it could be both a kind of a strength or kind of a, a hair-raising experience in trying to navigate that conversation. Um, how do you approach families in having that succession or transition planning discussion and kind of balance between their family relationships and really the decision on what's best for the business itself? Strong governance structure, really. Um, that's, that's really, I mean, the, the approach varies depending upon what the scenario is, but You've got to have a harmonious, collaborative, focused family environment, essentially, to succeed in the business realm and trying to separate that. In other words, you know, working with X, Y, Z, sister, brother, parents at the office and then going home and Thanksgiving dinner, expecting that that's going to be a completely different dynamic is is really um, and uh, it's a pie in the sky scenario that doesn't normally happen. But when it comes to the business, there is a switch that can be turned on and turned off, and it really comes down to the strong governance structure. So whether or not, and, and this kind of goes in tandem, basically, creating a family council 
Um, it's not always essential, but a lot of times it's a very good thing to have essentially so the family can actually figure out how they're going to interact with the business. That's how you start to bring up uh, the next generation of leaders in the business or owners or what have you, uh, start getting them acquainted on what the business is about. And I'm talking, you know, you can start this when they're 12 years old, five years old, 10 years old. Um, so they start understanding how the business runs, what the family's relationship is to it. And also it gives set time, a set schedule and a set cadence for families to actually start discussing how their relationship is evolving with the business per se. And then you get into actually board of directors and professionalizing the governance structure. Um, you know, you kind of have to run these businesses like a mini Fortune 50 if you want to continue from a legacy perspective. The other element to what your question asked about is creating, as opposed to creating a sellable asset, which is an end goal, or creating a succession roadmap, which obviously is kind of another end goal. It's creating a wealth generating asset, basically, for the family or a family business asset, basically. So you end up putting the family, for, moving family from operators to overseers. So they sit on the board and you install a leadership team that knows how to run the business, incentivize them in various ways, but they're non-family members. That it takes the family business dynamic out of the business in a lot of respects, and, but it still allows the family to continue to operate, oversee, and continue the legacy of the business and benefit from its gains and benefits. So from what you're explaining, it sounds like one could go about two different tracks or just take two tracks at the same time. So I guess can correct me if I'm understanding correctly. One track is if the intention is to make sure that the baton or torches stays within the business and goes to the next generation needing to start, as you mentioned, when they're 10 years old, not <laughs> not when mom and dad wants to like retire next year. And, and so that's the first track. And then the second track is instead of just being day-to-day operators in the business, they step back and act as a board of directors per se, and let someone else step in to run the day-to-day. Is that kind of the gist of it? Yeah. I mean, there's three really options when it comes to transition planning. And I wasn't suggesting that a 10-year-old take over the business, but you you know, if you create a council and, and a cadence, obviously where the family gets together and starts meeting and how they and discusses how they interact with the business, what the business is about, and start educating that next generation of of leaders and or governance structure, I guess, if they're going to be on the board. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, that's that's kind of how usually family councils should be used because the board of directors for a company is used for focused on the board or the business itself, basically. I mean, you can put independent directors on there, but family council is more about how the family interacts with the business. Board of directors is what's going on in the business and how are they going to interact with the leadership team of the business. Mm-hmm. Um and then you get into what you were talking about. So there's really three options, basically. You can create a sellable asset, which case in point, you know, you create an asset so you can sell it, put it on the open market, redo the kitchens and baths, basically. So when you put it on there on the market, it's turnkey property, not a foreclosure. You can create a succession roadmap, which is passing the baton to the next generation of leadership. Obviously, you need to train them. You have to make sure they want the business, um, you know, the, that they have actually a passion for it. Um, and then they have the capabilities of continuing the legacy and running the business. And then the third element, which a lot of times is 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 a good benefit to family businesses, basically creating a family business asset or a wealth generating asset, basically. So to your point, yeah, the family sits on the board of uh, the board essentially and oversees how the business operates from that perspective on a governance structure. But they don't actually deal with the day to day. They have installed a leadership team, a CEO, whatever it is. Um, to be able to manage that perspective. And, and yeah, so, I mean, the family continues to retain the power of the business. They continue the legacy and continue the legacy of the business, but they don't actually interact with it. That removes the family dynamic. It also removes the, the, I guess you could say dutifulness sometimes that goes into these businesses. Cause I mean, you have to think, I mean, just because somebody third, second, whatever generation created the business and carried the baton, 
that doesn't mean the next generation actually wants to do it. I mean, somebody may have a passion for being a doctor or a lawyer or whatever their profession, you know, maybe an artist, I don't know, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And they don't actually want to go into making widgets for the next 30 years of their life. Well, if you do this, it frees them up because they can actually have outside lives, but they still retain the business. The business continues to be in the family and the legacy continues. It almost sounds like you're kind of building a firewall so that they don't cross over from business into awkward or, or tense Thanksgiving dinners. <laughs> well, it does remove a little bit of the family dynamic, essentially. But yeah, it's just more or less creating, basically creating a wealth generating asset for the family, basically. So they don't actually have to deal with the day to day in terms of all the struggles and HR things. And, you know, how are we going to grow scale, streamline this business on a daily perspective? They just sit on the board, essentially, and help direct traffic and advise from that perspective and continue to add value in that way. But mm-hmm. yeah, you know, instead of working 365 days or however many days they're actually, because I mean, it's kind of a seven day a week job, you know, they're, they're meeting, you know, once a month or whatever the cadence is for the board meetings, essentially, and advising the leadership team who has, you know, expertise in particularly running certain styles of businesses. Mm-hmm. And they can actually have outside lives and outside careers, um, you know, but then again, it's, it's not a sale because I can tell you that most owners that I talk to, a sell is not their family businesses. Their selling is not their number one choice. Basically, a mm. lot of times, not all the time, but a lot of times, selling is 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 a byproduct of lack of planning. So, can I share with us what are some, I guess, the the misconceptions or myths surrounding family businesses? You know, the, the, yeah, that there's a lot of dysfunction. I mean, honestly, the misconception a lot of times is that it's easier to run a family business because you can't fire family. Or it's more difficult because you can't fire family. And that's not the truth. I mean, I've worked with families that fired relatives and all the time. And, you know, you do have to figure out generally how everybody plays in the same sandbox together. And that's really where a lot of those discussions come about. I mean, there's been a number of families that I've helped um, where we started with trying to figure out how we were going to structure it from a family perspective and or we were solving problems. And I mean, some of them ran into health issues for certain people because, you know, when, when the family's imploding and people think they've done things right, things get pretty tense, you know. And, you know, at the end of the day, there's still your brother, sister, parent, whatever, father, uncle. Um, so, you know, a lot of times that comes down to having that strict governance structure, having a cadence of meetings, essentially having your charter documents in order. And by that, I mean, like, bylaws and shareholder agreements and and board charters and things um, so that it's kind of plainly laid out because a lot of family businesses don't actually operate that way. I mean, actually, a lot of privately held businesses don't operate in that manner. You know, I mean, I've, I've been involved in both. Uh, my focus is family business, but usually somebody has an idea, they figure out how to monetize it, and then it's growth, 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 and we'll figure the rest of the stuff out later. Unfortunately, the rest of the stuff generally never fig- gets figured out later. So, you know, I mean, you've got to you, you've got to continue to evolve a business and and I guess you could say mature it um, and professionalize it. To the level that you're looking for, and if you want a legacy business that's going to last the le- last generations, then, you know, you have to treat it as such and it, uh, flying by the seat of your pants from a financial perspective, not having any governance structure, just making decisions with the hip bone KPI, the key performance indicator being the hip bone. Um, it's not exactly the the general way of a rinse and repeat operation. Mm-hmm. So ha- having worked with all business and seeing what doesn't work, share with the audience some of the key factors that you notice trend-wise that is successful on family businesses that have it together. Like what, what are the top things that they are doing that the others are not? Proactive. Being proactive 
and actually understanding when external external advisors can be handy and valuable, basically. Um, you know, it's like anybody, I guess the analogy of, you know, not wanting to stop and ask for directions. Well, I mean, you might get there, but it may take you six hours longer than it should have. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of the same thing. I mean, you know, if you want brain surgery, you hire a brain surgeon. You know, there's certain blind spots that all these family businesses have, but it, it, being proactive and being accepting and acknowledging that outside advisors can add value to your world is is a huge step in, you know, in moving forward. Um, and I guess you could say creating a structure with that's driven by systems, processes, data, um, as opposed to kind of flying by the seat of your pants. Because, I mean, that filters down to the hiring process, the uh, you know, hire, the firing process, basically. I mean, sole dependency is an issue in a lot of these businesses. Do they have any desktop procedures? Can somebody can step into that role? Essentially, what's the training and onboarding perspective? Because most of them don't have a lot of turnover in a lot of cases. But I mean, you have to look at it again, like a mini Fortune 50 company. And the other side of it, and this is this is just what I phrase it as, is all family business owners need a life business and retirement strategy. And when I say life, okay, how does the business, how do the how does the family interact with the business? How does family get in and out of the business? What's the protocol for that? Do they have to work 10 years outside of the business before they step in? Or do they just step in from college or the high school or whatever and get the corner office, which is probably not a good idea. Um, And then you get into how is the family going to resolve conflict? I mean, that can be detailed in charter documents, essentially, is this is the process that we follow to to solve conflict. Um, And then you get into looking at the business and following suit, essentially building that out so that it's, it's a rinse and repeat. It's an operation um, that can have systems and processes again. And then the retirement strategy is something that you and I've discussed actually is in running parallel. So, I mean, most owners have too much assets tied up in their business, basically they need to do risk themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, So, I mean, we can create a better economic engine that's, you know, performing more optimal optimally, um, but what are you going to do with that bigger pot of gold? And a lot of times that's why I say they need to partner with their financial advisor to start funding ancillary source of assets so that when it does come to legacy, it comes to generational transition. Even if they have everything teed up, they can actually plan it so they don't even have to sell it to the next generation. Because, you know, let's face it, unfortunately, that money's important, certainly from a retirement perspective. And if you get into a scenario where you have all your assets tied up in the business and you want to give it to your kids, you know, it depends on what your age is, but there's not a lot of options in a lot of ways, you know, but if you have sufficient assets outside of the business, then that is, that is something you can do. Of course, you can put debt on the business, but then the business has to be exponentially more successful. And the person that retiring or the family members that are retiring are totally relying on that business continuing to operate in good form. So hopefully there's no pandemic or recession. So again, it's, it's trying to look at it from a financial perspective, look at it from a business perspective in terms of optimally performing a business, and then looking at it from a life perspective. How does the, how does the family interact? What's their vision? What's their timeline? What's their goals for the transition? Who's going to take it over? How are they being trained? Do they want it? Are those discussions happening? Because mm-hmm. I mean, there's a number of families that I've worked with, you know, and says, I'm going to give it to Jane or Joe and. You know, you have you actually asked Jane or Joe if they want the business, if this, you know, if this is the life that they want? No, they just expect it. And that's a challenge for a lot of businesses. Yeah. So for all listeners that are kind of hearing this uh, either for the first time or or maybe the 10th time where it's finally starting to trickle through <laughs> the cracks, for lack of a better word, how can they best uh, find you to kind of garner more of your wisdom and your guidance in navigating this tough conversation or at least being proactive, taking that first step? Yeah, it always starts with a conversation. I mean, there's, you know, these are 
big transformational projects. Owners are facing their own retirement challenges, which is a roadblock to starting this process. Um, they're also facing family challenges because then they have to start picking children in a lot of different ways, or at least having those discussions of who's going to take it over or what's that going to look like. And, you know, again, that's, that's sometimes pricking a wound that most people really would let would would rather leave untouched. Um, in terms of reaching me, my phone number is 502-741-7852. My website is www.ibridgeglobalpartners.com. And I'm on LinkedIn, you know, Jeremy Stevenson at iBridge. Great. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank right. you. I appreciate it. And for our next guest, we have H- Hannah Donahue and Kurt Sealer with Baldwin Risk Partners. Welcome to the show. Thank Thanks you. Thanks for having us. Great. So uh, we'll start with uh, Hannah. Share with us your, your story as to what got you into the field. Yeah. So I kind of have a similar background to Jeremy. I came from family business mm-hmm. also and ran retail boutiques with my father. So it's interesting to hear the heartaches (laughs) (laughs) on his perspective. Um, But my background is like sales marketing from a retail and nonprofit perspective. And so I came from the nonprofit side recently and was just ready to get back into the corporate world. And I felt like insurance was a great place to start because I was still catering to services and taking care of people. But it was just a different kind of sales cycle. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. So I took a little different route. Uh, I was a student at Kennesaw State, a business finance major back in the day, way back up uh, 2015, actually. And State Farm recruited me right out of the Burris building. And I got my start there, like a lot of people in this industry, just working for a local State Farm agency, cutting my teeth, getting licensed, learning the business. Uh, learning how to represent clients' interest against a big national carrier like State Farm and make sure they're covered. Uh, So I did that for a long time, and it was great. Uh, I actually have a lot of good things to say about State Farm as a company. It's a great start uh, to learn and and get involved in this industry and learn how to actually insure somebody. Mm -hmm. But I I felt that uh, you know it didn't really represent the client directly in the best way. In, In a way, when you work for a company like State Farm, you only represent them. You're, you're almost working for them, even though they like to say you're a, a, a independent agent, which isn't really true when it's a company like State Farm, Allstate, uh, Farmers, mm-hmm. you know, local mom and pop shops. So I, I transitioned over to the independent brokerage side of things. Baldwin Risk Partners is a huge national firm. We don't work for any one client, uh, carrier. We work for the client directly. Mm-hmm. So I, I actually go out and I meet a client or a client is referred to me through their financial advisor or banker and I assess their needs as they are. And then I go and find and tailor the insurance policy or the insurance company or product to cover them specific to, to who they are. And, and that way I feel like I'm able to actually represent them and actually protect them in their best interest versus here, here's all I've got is this one company to cover you, take it or leave it. Mm-hmm. So that's how I got my start uh, and been doing it almost 10 years now. So as we were kind of on the subject of family businesses and talking about protecting assets, there's another elephant in the room, of course, personal assets, homeowners, and auto. I know it's probably not the sexiest title mm-hmm. or subject, but that is an elephant in the room when we're talking about protecting assets. So kind of share with us, you know, what do you specifically look for when reviewing uh, potential clients' um, homeowners insurance? Because I, I imagine that's a whole segment of an asset that even if they're a non-business owner, that's probably 
when they're starting out, their largest asset. So kind of share with us a little insight of what is it that you're specifically looking for and some people might be missing in their actual coverage where they assume they might have something, but they really don't have. I think that's a great point. Uh, I know you're a financial advisor and as you know, most people, their largest asset is their home uh, for everyday, you know, Joe's mm-hmm. here. And, and one thing that I see a, a lot of times is not covered is their liability, the property liability. If, if they host parties, gatherings, they, they don't realize this, but if you serve alcohol at your house, you may have liquor liability and exposure to that. And if somebody goes home from your party and they're driving and something happens, God forbid, that could be tracked to you, just like how they go after a bar or something that serves them. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a rare one. We, we also see a lot of uh, people with swimming pools. God forbid someone gets injured or drowned, uh, slip and fall. Mm-hmm. If they can prove you're negligent, they'll claim it against you. And if you don't have enough liability on your home policy or you have personal injury excluded, which a lot of the basic, you know, in the box carriers like Allstate and State Farm exclude, mm-hmm. you actually have to have your agent add that on nowadays, then you're screwed. You're, that's coming out of your pocket. And so that's what we're there for to write the policy and review and make sure it's actually protecting you. So you're not just throwing your money away towards this insurance company. It's actually something that's going to have your back when you need it. And I was going to mention, I think one of the biggest misconceptions we get is people think, oh, my house was 500000 I'm just going to insure my home for 500000 But that's maybe the market value that they chose the home at, but we're looking at the true replacement cost, and that's always changing. So we're looking at if that house was completely totaled, how much would it cost to rebuild the home exactly how it was prior to the catastrophe. Mm-hmm. And so we're, we have a special uh, calculators that we go through with that. We're looking at the square footage. We're looking at the age of the elect- electrical appliances, the plumbing, the roof age, all of those things are playing into a part of replacement costs of the home. And oftentimes we're finding that people are underinsured on their homes. And another big thing that we we work with a lot of high net worth uh, carriers and they give you the option of guaranteed replacement costs. So that way you're not stuck to your coverage, a dwelling limit. If they say if it's 500,000, but it might take 750,000 to rebuild that home. So that guaranteed replacement cost endorsement is allowing you more flexibility. Should you get into that kind of situation? Yeah, especially from the past couple of years, uh, especially during the pandemic, uh, the cost of wood was just <laughs> astronomical, uh, especially with cost of labor now, just doing anything, let alone replacement, uh, which I guess kind of segueing right, right into, I guess, the, the insurance terminology, if I'm understanding correctly, is like a replacement cost and then something cash value and then something regarding to roofing. So kind of share with us, like, what is that for, for people who are not in insurance? What does that mean for us? Anthony, I knew you were a smart guy. <laughs> I don't know about that, but I try to make myself feel better, but thank you. <laughs> Man, are you sure you don't work in insurance? Because that's something very few of us know, even in the industry. But mm-hmm. it's it's a huge loophole in your contract with your insurance company on your home. Especially all state, they're notorious for this. But now we're starting to see it with other companies like Farmers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so actual cash value loss assessment. That's when they go and they depreciate the home's value or the roof's value by how old it is. So they go, all right, your roof's 15 years old, uh, lightning storm, tree falls on your roof, the whole thing needs replacement. Mm-hmm. But after 10 years, Allstate does ACV, actual cash value loss assessment. So they're going to go ahead and depreciate 40% off the top. 
So your roof's basically half covered. You still have a deductible. Mm-hmm. And now you have a home claim on your record for three to five years. And now you can't switch. Nobody else will take you. Or they're far higher just because you have the claim. Mm-hmm. So you're in a position where you've been paying premiums to a company for years. And now you have a claim. And they're only going to cover half of it. It's a, it's a double ripoff from both ends of the sword. So if I'm understanding, if I'm playing the scenario in my head, Craig, so let's just say my roof is just 10000 just easy numbers. And the depreciation, if that's the right terminology, is 50%. So that means they would cover me for 5000 out of the 10000 And then your home deductible is 2500 bucks, let's say. Oh. So, so, now, so now you're really getting a $2,500 check for the claim. The rest is on you. Well, that's good to know. Uh, I imagine our listeners probably scratching their head now, probably wanting to look. So so if they're not with those carriers, then what, what verbiage should they be looking at? Or is that something that you like zone in once they give you, I guess, for lack of a word, our deck page? That's right. That's a great, yeah. That's that's the term we use. Look for a replacement cost loss assessment, or even better, what we do is guaranteed replacement cost. Mm-hmm. So that's that's something offered by a company like a Chubb. You know, they're the premier insurance carrier, typically. Uh, Cincinnati insurance, even auto owners insurance, they all do guaranteed replacement cost. Mm -hmm. So that means no matter what it actually takes to rebuild your home, they're going to have to rebuild it. So say we're covering it for 500 grand. Easy numbers again, just to to work with for the example. Mm -hmm. And they run into all these cost overruns. Inflation's hit, as we know, in 2020, ever since the pandemic. And it actually takes 750000 to rebuild the house. Well, because your agent, us, put guaranteed replacement cost in your contract, they're going to have to pay that 750000 and fully rebuild the house as is. Even though you've only been paying premiums on a policy that estimates and covers it for five hundred grand. Well, then another thing we're seeing is the carriers are getting more strict over the age of roofs. And so many of our carriers will say if the roof is older than 10 years, we're not going to cover them unless they redo the roof. Or they'll say we'll only offer the actual cash value like you mentioned before. But another thing we want to warn our um, or advise our prospective clients is your insurance policy is not a wear and tear policy. It's for catastrophe. Mm-hmm. So if a there's a storm that comes through and – a roofer comes to your house and they try to coerce you, you should redo your um, roof. We can maybe prove that there's hail damage. It's like you have to kind of take a minute and stop and say, is this really something that I want to, you know, enter because it's not always truthful or ethical. Mm -hmm. But also if you do a roof claim, that's usually a very big claim that's sitting on your uh, home policy history. And so that's going to hinder, you know, your premiums or potentially switching to a different insurance carrier down the road. Cause they're going to see that red flag that they recently did a roof claim, which is, could usually be like 10 to $20,000 oftentimes. Mm-hmm. So I'm, if I'm understanding correctly here is that don't just go for a potential claim just for the sake of it, because the long-term cost, whether it's obviously the premium hike, the next year on a renewal or you're just more or less stuck in that particular carrier with for X amount of years. And, and I'm of course going to jack up the, <laughs> the premium and you're just kind of really stuck there. If I'm, if I'm understanding that correctly, that as, as the potential long-term cause. Yeah. I mean, it's basically like you're creating a report card. The more claims you 
participate in, the worse your report card is. And the mm-hmm. carriers are going to be less likely to care to take care of you, or they may non-renew you because you've uh, had three or more claims in the past five years. So mm-hmm. that's always the type of, of advice um, that we're looking at when we're speaking to our prospects. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a good agent is going to tell you when not to make a small claim, just just as quick as they'll tell you when to go ahead and file this one, and we'll help you with it. Mm-hmm. So it's it's our job to fight on your behalf against the insurance carrier. You need you need an advocate. Mm-hmm. They they have lawyers. They have this legalese written into their policy contracts that'll confuse you know even the most seasoned vet in this game. Uh, our 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 whole role is just to defend you and to get you the maximum value out of your insurance policies mm-hmm. and to make sure that you're covered for every risk that you've got. Yeah. Now property risk is usually on the forefront of people's minds. You drive a nice car, you have a nice house, you, mm-hmm. you worked hard to buy that and you want to protect it. Uh, same thing applies to liability. That's, that's really our most essential function that we see. And, and, and the most, you know, frequent requests we get from business owners and wealthy individuals, mm-hmm. they're worried about the liability. How do I keep everything protected? You know? Yeah. So kind of segue on the liability, but since we're still kind of talking more on the abstract side of things, especially with people with, Either high net worth or run business, they understand liability protection when it comes to having LLCs or businesses separated from their personal belongings. Then kind of share with us uh, in terms of umbrella coverage. Because sometimes when I introduce that terminology, a lot of people kind of stare at me like deer in the headlights. Like, well, what is this? Well, why do I need this? So share with the audience as to why that is important, especially for those with assets. Of course, of course. So an insurance company... When you buy a policy, they do have the duty to defend you. Even if you buy a state minimum auto policy, they'll go get you a very bad lawyer that they have on retainer. And they'll, they'll probably try to settle for the amount of money you have, but it's, it's not, you're not going to be pleased with the responsiveness and work if you just have a basic auto policy. Mm-hmm. If you have an umbrella policy, which starts at a million dollars in coverage to defend you, you're, you're going to get a legal team because and, and, they don't want to pay out a million dollars. They, they now have a vested interest in protecting you before it goes to court. So an umbrella just gives you that higher level of duty to defend. They pay for your legal fees, and they give you over a million dollars to settle any claim against you, especially bodily injury, especially property liability. And, uh, you know, we'll get into this later, but especially if you have like a secondary lake house and somebody were to drown or something mm-hmm. on your property, that's when things get scary. And that's when you want an umbrella or your best friend having your back. When kind of, I guess we might as well just kind of dig in on the personal library, whether it's on property, you meant you touch a little bit on um, entertaining at one's house, or in this case, perhaps a lakefront property, uh, someone swimming in the swimming pool, or you had one of your kid's friends, I guess, kind of having a joy ride with the boat. I mean, if something happens, what would that play out for that policy? So because it's your property and it's another child coming in, that falls in onto your liability. So you can get sued if that child uh, crashed the boat, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and the end of the day, with the umbrella policies, we're looking to protect our client's wealth. So we're making sure that that liability limit is matching their personal assets or their personal net worth, because the wealthier someone is, the more vulnerable they are for lawsuits because people can see that see their wealth. You know, it's usually public knowledge. So we're trying to make sure that our high net worth clients are protected sufficiently. Which then segues to the next question: Sometimes, because you mentioned umbrella policies, kind of start at a base of a million. 
And then you kind of allude a little bit, okay, well, the coverage should be kind of somewhat similar or, or matching to the net worth. Like, what is there a formula or is it simply just as easy as, okay, I am at worth X amount on paper on net worth. I should have Y or similar X amount in umbrella. Is that just about a, a correct formula or do you have something else that are more fine-tuned? So that is contextual to the situation. We, we work with the financial advisor on that and typically come up with an amount that either matches or hopefully exceeds their assets just to make sure that, hey, we're not at risk of losing what you've built. Mm-hmm. It doesn't always have to be, you know, for example, if a guy's worth 200 million bucks, you know, $50 million umbrella is enough to settle almost anything. Mm-hmm. I mean, what would he have to do to actually go <laughs> get a judgment past 50 million? Yeah. I don't even, I don't even, I shudder to think about that. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to have it match every time, but you want to get as close as you're comfortable with paying for in premium. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At the end of the day, that umbrella policy is to protect. Are you okay with coming out of pocket? You know, are you, if you're going to get sued for 1.5 million, your umbrella policy is 1 million, but your home, you have the 500 liability. So you should be okay. You're matched that way. But what if you're sued for 5 million Mm -hmm. and your umbrella policy only covers you for a million, you know, then you're out of pocket for the remainder of that um, litigation. Mm -hmm. And you know what? People don't think a lot about a lot of the things that can open you up to this. We all have 16 year olds who drive our cars that we own in our name and we're just trusting them out there on the road and God forbid something happens and that comes back on you. They're your dependent. Mm-hmm. So until they're out of the household, you're liable for, for their damages because they certainly don't have enough to pay working over at Publix or wherever. Mm-hmm. So keep in mind of that. Uh, another thing is you can be attacked on your, uh, your personal net worth for your capacity on an HOA board or even a not-for-profit charity board. So that's why umbrellas have those built-in endorsements. Uh, we call it DNO coverage mm-hmm. uh, to protect you from anything that, that arises from that and comes after your personal assets. And when you say DNO coverage, what is that acronym? Directors like? and officers. Okay. So if you sit on a board, uh, you know, normally they'll just go after the board or the mm-hmm. business or the entity. But if, if they're really after you or it's something you've done uh, against the claimant, Mm-hmm. They can come after you personally too. Doesn't mean they'll win, but you want to. Do you want to pay for a lawyer to to deal with that? Do you want to go to court and take time out of your busy schedule? Mm-hmm. Probably not. It's best to have your insurance company just go ahead and cease and desist them and and, and pay for the attorney to handle that. Mm-hmm. Another um, common thing we're looking at with umbrella policy: there's an endorsement for employment liability. So you are looking at do. At your home, do you have a nanny? Do you have a house cleaner? Do you have other employees in your home? Are they actually insured correctly? Because you want to make sure, you know, that nanny could have that slip and fall and she can sue you right then and there. She Mm. could sue you for defamation because maybe she got fired and she wasn't happy about what she got fired over. Um, Mm. So those are the little like minute details that we're looking at people's personal portfolios, um, making sure you have a um, manual for your, your home employees. You know, those are things we're looking at as well. So the kind of, okay. So that's another perspective that I'm a little blindsided on was, so let's just say, for example, for, for parents, whether it's a nanny or just hiring our neighborhood babysitter, like the person is in high school and he or she is just kind of looking to make some money in the summer. Uh, is that something that's would, would be covered uh, under this kind of liability and either the homeowners or umbrella or that's like something completely separate. 
Great question. I love where your mind went with that because it's not covered. Oh. Unless you have that endorsement, employment practices liability. That's mm. the official term for it. On a standard home policy or even a standard umbrella policy, not covered. So for all of our parents that are listening <laughs> in right now, thinking, oh, yeah, I got a, a high school uh, gal that just kind of babysits my, my five-year-old, is probably thinking I, I should probably go and, and open that policy booklet I have not opened up in five-plus years. Yep. Or I've had with my State Farm agent buddy I went to high school with for uh-huh. 10, 15 years, and I haven't looked at it. Mm. Yeah. So then kind of looking in, in terms of uh, on the family business side of things, Hannah, Hannah, what are other things that a business owner should also take into account beyond, let's say, a non-business owning family would when it comes to whether it's just a home auto liability? I think it's making sure that your assets for the business and your personal portfolio are completely separate and making sure like the business might be in an LLC, but your personal stuff could be in your names. But if you have, for an example, like a rental property, that might be something you want to consider putting in an LLC as well, because that's opening you up to liability implications if you're doing that rental property under your names. Mm -hmm. So we're looking at making sure that you're protecting your personal wealth versus your commercial wealth and in two different ways. So, so I'm touching on that because uh, nowadays that the hot thing is either the Airbnbs or the verbals. I keep getting spammed on <laughs> every social media outlet of, of verbal this and that. So, all right, well, surely there's got to be some additional liability protection there or exposure that the someone who just dipping their toe in for the first time, buying their first I don't know, a property to, to kind of lease and, and do their own thing. What, what additional perspectives they should be aware about? That's a great point. And I'm glad she brought up rental property because like you said, we see that everywhere these days, especially Airbnb. Mm-hmm. So Airbnb has a sweet deal and I'd have to look at the specific legalese, but they put all of the responsibility on the property owner. So if a guest gets hurt there, that's why you need to have good insurance. And that's why Airbnb requires the property owner to have at least a million mm-hmm. because it's going on their insurance policy. It's going against their name, not Airbnb. They have, they have an ironclad contract, for lack of a better term, mm-hmm. with that property owner. And if a guest gets hurt there, it's all directed at the owner of the property, mm-hmm. especially if they can prove negligence. Like if they say your handrail isn't up to code or you don't have one or oh. your steps or whatever. They're, they're, you know how people find mm-hmm. uh, something. When we're, in, we're shopping for a carrier for these Airbnbs, we're making sure that we are telling our underwriters that it is a short-term rental. It's not a long-term rental because those kind of details are very important because many of our carriers do not want to cover the short-term rentals because it does involve um, more risk. You have more risk for burglarizing, for um, vacant property, you know, uh, pest control, all those kind of things that you wouldn't necessarily think about. Mm-hmm. So we are trying to get that fine toothed comb when we're doing the discovery process with them to really understand how often are you renting your property for how long, um, how are you vetting the people that are renting the property? So, I mean, we're always trying to do that deep dive mm-hmm. so that we don't run into a problem that if they're trying to make a claim and the carrier says, well, you didn't disclose this, so we're not going to honor your claim. Yeah. So it sounds like it's best to just disclose everything up front so you don't I guess, butt heads when it of comes course. claim time. Of course. If you don't disclose 
the risk and, and they have questions for all on all home applications. Do you rent this house out? How often and, and how long for each rental? Mm-hmm. And if you answer on that application for just a standard home policy that no, I don't rent it out and you actually are. And then something happens or God forbid the guests or the tenants burn down your place. Mm-hmm. That insurance company definitely has a right to deny that claim and leave you out to dry. Mm-hmm. So have, make sure you always have to disclose. Yeah. I had a similar situation on the auto side that basically um, it was an individual that he already has a, a long track record of accidents and speeding tickets and that sort of thing. So it was already hard to cover him for his auto policy to begin with. And then his carrier dropped him because he never disclosed that he was driving for Uber or oh. um, doing, you know, one of those kind of app driven mm-hmm jobs. And so they dropped him. And then because of his bad track record, it was very hard to place him. And we had to kind of put it back to him. We're not the best market for you because we don't have anything affordable at this time. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, we're always looking at that. What if, Mm -hmm. you know, so it almost sounds like all these uh, app and, and gigs have a bit more cost to them than, than what they actually disclose. Yeah. People don't think about that. There's, there's a startup cost and insurance is definitely one of the heaviest. Mm-hmm. But that's okay. I mean, that's why you get a good agent. You're not stuck with one company like a State Farm, Allstate, whoever. Mm-hmm. We have 30 to 40 carriers. So if one of them gets out of line, we're going to go find someone who will play ball with you and mm-hmm. get it covered the right way. So there's no worry about disclosing it or, or quoting it or you know, live your lifestyle how you want. And if you want to rent out your house, feel free. We'll find a solution to make sure it's covered the right way. Mm-hmm. And we'll make sure it's priced fairly too. We were. It feels. It feels like we're just like t- scratching the tip of the iceberg. Whether it's homeowners, short term, and we barely even touched on on the auto insurance. I imagine that that's like a whole ra- rabbit hole that mm-hmm. by itself. Uh, for those sort of listeners that are just kind of learning all this for the first time, particularly for parents if they're hiring either nannies <laughs> or babysitters, and realizing, oh, I should probably check. Uh, what was the endorsement again? Specifically, employment practices liability. Em- and it's on your umbrella, by the way. It's not on your home policy. Oh, okay. So something that, especially if they don't have an umbrella, then they then <laughs> they're get, really screwed. Yeah. yeah, they didn't get that rectified. So how can our listeners uh, best reach out to you and, and, and learn more? Yeah, so um, we can both be accessed. Our website is bks-partners.com. Mm-hmm. Um, for Hana, myself, you can reach me at 404-947-7128. And I am also on LinkedIn and and same for me. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn, Kurt, K-U-R-T-S-E-I-L-E-R. And my phone number is 404-372-2270. And uh, I'd be happy to help. Okay. And your number? Oh, I apologize. It's 404-947-7128. And my email is similar. It's the dot. O'Donohue, which you would get that spelling on LinkedIn <laughs> at bks-partners.com. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you. So for all this, you kind of hear many, multiple different perspectives. Uh, one from a specialist that works with family businesses and having that conversation being proactive and also uh, on a segue right into from family businesses to talk about risk management and protecting liability, not just on the business side of things in transition, but just protecting one's asset, you know, even if one is not a business owner. So kind of a, a circle back in terms of a question to bring a guest back on is, knowing what you know now, what would you have recommended to yourself differently when you just started? 
So again, the question is, knowing what you know now, what would you have recommended to yourself differently when you initially started? So to kind of give our guests some time to think, this is kind of the legalese <laughs> portion of the show. So this show is sponsored and brought to you by yours truly, Anthony Chen with Lighthouse Financial Network, securities and advisory services offered through Osaic, member FINRA SIPC. Osaic is separately owned and other entities and or marketing names, products or services referenced here are independent of Osaic. Our main office address is at 575 Broad Hollow Road in Melville, New York, 11747. You can best reach me at 631-465-9090, extension 5075, or my email, which is just my phone name, Anthony Chen, C-H-E-N, there's no dot in between, at lfnllc.com. So bringing our guest back in, uh, again, the question was, knowing what you know now, how would you recommend the business to yourself differently when you started? So to kind of kick us off, Jeremy. Yeah, thanks for the question, Anthony. Honestly, I don't think I could actually do too many things differently because the you know what I do takes a culmination of experience from a lot of different ways. Mm-hmm. And obviously working in family business in the beginnings and seeing the different differentials and dynamics that go on there. And then obviously getting into corporate you know, corporate finance, I guess, to be more precise, doing business taxes and then getting into consultancy and helping hundreds of these family businesses, some of them probably held, some of them private equity back, some of them in turnaround scenarios, some of them well-performing. Um, and then, you know, building a startup and selling that company and then getting back into what I really like in terms of helping family businesses. I don't think it, it takes a lot of different knowledge pieces to be able to put the, put the puzzle together. So I don't think there's anything I could have done besides maybe condense the time frame and move faster. And that's, uh, you know, unfortunately the way I usually approach things is faster, 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 but it doesn't always work out too well. Great. Thank you. Hannah. It's definitely a very loaded question. (laughs) Um, I think if I were to tell my 22 year old self, um, you know, whether it was coming out of college or just getting married and having to combine insurance forces with my husband or just protecting just myself, Um, I think probably the biggest thing I would say is read your policy. I never, I just put my trust in my agent. I thought he knows what he's doing. He's got it. But in the end of the day, if I probably read my policy, I would have seen, you know, a lot of red flags, whether it was maybe my personal property wasn't covered um, enough or my home replacement costs wasn't sufficient or my auto is covered at actual cash value rather than agreed value, which we didn't touch upon too much, but those would be kind of big buzzwords I'd be looking at um, throughout my policies. And even the collections piece, I think, you know, every time you're going through a different life cycle, you want to think, well, what do my assets look like now? Well, now I have an engagement ring. I just got married or I just had my bat mitzvah and my child has now accumulated all these new pieces of jewelry. Maybe these are um, items that should be included in my schedule for my collections policy. So kind of thinking about if I were to take a step back is actually read the fine print and see what is actually covered in my policy. Hannah honestly stole one of mine, but I'm still (laughs) going to go with it. Uh, Agreed value. I I didn't even know what that was when I was 22. So uh, I actually did total a 2017 Ford fusion back in the day. Yes. Just because I'm an insurance agent doesn't mean I've always (laughs) been the best driver. Uh, And I just bought the car for fifteen grand, brand new, and you know the, the adjuster for 
you know, State Farm at the time goes, all right, we'll give you eleven grand for it. Go, go, have fun with that kid. So just read your policy, like she said. Look out for things like that. You can easily get. Doesn't mean it costs a lot more. In fact, I don't even think it costs a lot more at all. If you get agreed value, you just need to fight the right company mm-hmm. who will provide it. So that's a good one. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you. All right, now for a little section of what we would call Anthony's financial take. Uh, you've all heard it here. Is I think that kind of the underlying theme is simply being proactive when we're talking about uh, reaching one's own financial goals uh, and addressing concerns. It's best to talk with a specialist that have both kind of the experience and understanding of risk. It is far better to mitigate against loss than it is to really just go after and chasing returns. It really takes a full team to actualize one's financial goals. And as a financial advisor, I am not swimming in the pools of the insurance brokers or people who are expert in in, uh, working with family business because they've got a far better lens in their specific niches and and silos. So at the end of the day, be proactive, work with a team that, again, have both the experience and understanding of risk. And that is the end of today's Anthony's Financial Take. And thank you for listening to Family Business Radio.